welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make. With your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast and Why Make Productions by making a tax-deductible donation to us on Fractured Atlas. Fractured Atlas is our new nonprofit fiscal sponsor, which allows us to access a wide range of funding possibilities, including funding available only for nonprofits, as well as not requiring us to pay taxes on your generous donations. Visit fundraising.fracturedatlas.org forward slash the dash y dash make dash project or go to the donate to why make page on why hyphen make.com welcome to episode 51 of why make we are excited to be talking with boston native aspen golan an artist and furniture maker and recent graduate of the north bennett street school who blends early american furniture forms with sculpture and social practice Aspen maintains an active teaching practice and recently received a Wingate residency in the Wood and Furniture Design program at San Diego State University. She has also received a Critical Craft Fellowship at the Winterthur Museum to explore the physical and social history of the Windsor Chair. Aspen talks about her involvement in the Chairmaker's Toolbox, a project that provides free tools, education, and mentorship for BIPOC gender non-conforming, and female makers seeking to build sustainable businesses. We also talk with Aspen about being a gay woman in the world of woodworking, teaching high school for seven years, brooms, brushes, and her obsessions most recently with making her own hardware and hand-silvering mirrors during her SDSU residency. Join us as we transform materials to transform form and crack some brains open talking with Aspen Golan. So, uh, we'd like to uh, welcome Aspen Golan. Is that the... Is that the pr- yeah, I'd say that's one of the three pronunciations that, see, that, that works. So, yeah. so, straighten us out. How do you pronounce your name? How do you say your I name? Say- Aspen Golan. I, okay. the, my last name named after the Golan Heights in Israel. So there is right. technically a right way to say okay. it, but there's there's a range. I would say there's an acceptable range. So Aspen and Golan, welcome to Why Make. Thanks for having me. <laughs> there. So, and the way we customarily like to start the, the podcast is with the Why Make question. So what is your first memory and or experience of making something? It's such a great question. And I, I've been struggling to remember. And honestly, just the act of trying to access those early memories has been in and of itself pretty fun. And I recommend it to anybody who has, you know, a long drive or some complicated thing to cook. But just put the radio on. And no. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> I think um, the earliest things that I can remember making, and I wouldn't have considered it making at the time, was... Um, I was really into taking, I think a lot of people do this, like taking leaves or sticks and um, breaking them up into super tiny little pieces and then pushing them into circles. That was pretty much what I wanted to do. I was like, I'm taking little objects and breaking them down and then I'm reforming them into shapes. Um, And I remember 
doing that, making these, you know, many, many, many of these circles of all of these different types of materials. So I do one out of leaf and one out of stick and one out of sand and one out of, and then I just search for more and more materials to make these little grids. And I remember doing that in like preschool um, in the asphalt area what, next to the playground. What do you think like <laughs> subconsciously caused you to do it? Cause you're like getting your Andy Goldsworthy on. But- yeah. <laughs> But you don't you don't know who he is at that point. <laughs> oh no. I mean when I finally saw that guy's work when I was I think a freshman in high school, I was like, this guy stole my brain. Yeah. <laughs> um I don't know. I mean, I think that for me it was like part of it is the process, right? It's just having a thing to do with your hands that's just enough that your brain is free. And then the other part of it, I think, is that I've always been just obsessed with materiality. I love manipulating materials. And so having this sort of standardized goal of a circle of of material, but then accessing that by breaking up different materials. I'm like, ooh, this is how a stick breaks. This is how small I can get the stick. This is how small I can tear the leaf. Like this is how it feels like to push these different objects into a circle. Anyway, that's a real weird one. And I I was hesitant to even offer it up because Mm -hmm. It's, no, uh, I don't. I, I, I don't think so at all. Actually, Melissa Angler's uh, when she answered the question, it was actually making uh, carrot people in a mm-hmm. salad when she was with her grandmother. I, I think it's the to me, you know, my memories of that are the first thing you do with real intent, which I think mm-hmm. is sort of the beginning of creativity, because I think I think creativity circles around intent, purposely doing something that's in your mind's eye. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the materiality and all those other things sort of come into play. But no, yeah. uh, like with yeah. with me, it was tree houses and it was like yeah. just getting whatever we could get as kids from construction site dumpsters and stuff. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, it's not like we're building a, a tree house from Home Depot. It's like, what do we got, man? We got a couple of two by four scraps and the half a piece of plywood and let's make this thing work. Yeah, and just, I remember. they were the weirdest looking tree houses I've ever seen, but they were great. They were ours. <laughs> <laughs> I remember um, like that sort of super early play state headspace. I remember being in fourth grade or about fourth grade and I'm at, sort of noticing that my capacity to access it was starting to disappear. I remember being conscious of that, of that sort of way that you used to be able to just slip into a completely unconscious play space as a child. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that it was happening less and that I was feeling kind of self-conscious about it as it was happening. And um, it felt sad, but inevitable, like noticing that going on. And right around that time we had in Boston, one of the most incredible snowstorms we've ever had. We're talking four and a half feet deep. It was on April Fool's Day. Wow. And like school was closed for about, I don't know, I think three or four days. And I remember thinking, I'm like, this is your last chance, dude. Go deep. <laughs> and, I, and I remember getting like, I got a um, wheelbarrow and I went around collecting all of the giant icicles off of people's houses, asking <laughs> if I could break them off, putting them in the wheelbarrow and then making the most incredible snow horse arena in my front yard. And I remember being a tiny bit embarrassed about it. You know, I was like, this is baby stuff. And then I was like, you know what? This is your last, this is your last real deep romp in this part of your brain. And thank God I was wrong, you know, but it was, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it was like a big, you know, there was a long 
I would say middle school and most of high school, even big chunk of college until I got back into making professionally. I don't really think I spent a lot of time in that super deep play space. Well, and it's because your headspace was taken up by soccer and high school and everything that goes along with it. And I mean, that, that was just like, that's kind of what happened to me. It disappeared to me for me too. Yeah. I mean, I feel like for me, it was more like emotional in mm. nature. You know, it's just like you become self-aware in this way that's necessary for growing up, but not necessarily conducive oh, to, yeah. you know, the full self-acceptance required to just hang out with yourself in your own little brain and just not think yeah. about what anyone else because I gave understands or what's true I gave or blah. too much of a shit in high school. What other people thought. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. We all go through a phase of giving way too much of a shit. Right. And then you, like, I feel like what making has done for me as an adult is it's like given me this super safe space to sort of reaccess that, you know, and then like the permission is further created by having access to, at least for me, like traditional craft. So it's like, I learn all this like technical stuff about how to do it right and then blend that with my subconscious child. And so now we have a subconscious child playing with all of these technical skills about how to do it right. And all of a sudden I'm like found access again for that little baby person to come back into my adulthood. And it's awesome. Right. So let's let's really address that. I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that all up because you do have a fascinating background and um you know, you did, you were a sculpture major as an undergrad, right? Yeah, I was. Where did you go to school? Oh, uh, I started out at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. Um, and I was a Russian lit major there. And then I transferred. I wanted to be a translator. Um, and I could still see that as a life, you know, one of one of the lives not lived. So do you speak other languages as we no, no, not okay. anymore. <laughs> but, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, these are like phases that yeah. have that have passed. And I mean, before I went to college, I took a year off and I lived on a boat and I was a coastal navigator. You know what I mean? I mean, like there, we contain multitudes, right? You try all these different, all these different <laughs> options before you land. Wow. But um, then I transferred to Kenyon College in um, in Gambier, Ohio. And I actually did not intend to study sculpture. I'd never made a sculpture before or worked three-dimensionally, you know, since my uh, snow horses. And I ended up in a sculpture class because I transferred and there were no other art classes open. Wow. And so I had to take it. <laughs> Fate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you ha- I, I you had to take an art. Cl- you had to take an art class. That was a part of your no. your core requirements or you chose to take an art class. I think I had to take an art class. It was <laughs> my <laughs> core requirements. requirements. Your <laughs> personal core requirements. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that in order to tolerate the experience of transfer um, and tolerate the experience of college in the first place, mm-hmm. I was I, I needed that. Yeah. Um, I, I, so it saved you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got saved by the radio station that I worked at and yeah. at West Virginia University. And if it wasn't for that, I would have I would have crashed and burned and not done anything. Yeah. So sculpture. So this sculpture class. Yeah. Talk about that for a minute and how it I mean, it was it's something that I think about regularly because it was the thing that, you know, basically brought me from two dimensional drawing and painting art making, which I'd been interested in you know, ever since somebody first gave me a crayon um, into three dimensions, which, you know, I think about like, 
I think about the role of sort of um, subconscious sexism in my life. And I think that one of the effects, you know, there was nobody saying, Aspen, you don't want to be a woodworker or women can't be woodworkers. There weren't people in my life explicitly saying that, but there was just, you know, the assumption that I was not interested, I think became an unconscious assumption that I adopted, right? I was like, I'm not, I guess I'm just not interested in that. And so being forced to take that class and what was that? What was that class actually? It was called Art with a Function. So it was actually it was essentially a furniture class. Our first assignment was something to sit upon. So not a chair technically, but might as well have been right. And I remember some of the other assignments were so something to sit upon, um, something that gives light, something something to grace your rear place. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I remember, um, you know, used, I basically, I think we've all done this before. Like I went into designing that object, leaning really hard on old skills. So leaning really mm-hmm. hard on drawing and painting skills. So it was like, this is, this is, right. this is the, oh, the path. Your, your old skills, the skills that yeah. you have acquired. Like this is gotcha. my successful path. Like mm-hmm. this is my strong muscle. Right. And I rolled into that class with this basically like a drawing made three dimensional, or at least the idea of one, we all shared our drawings. And my instructor who ended up being very important to me and probably a big part of why I ended up in woodworking. Um, he made the very, you know, the very like, I don't know, fair assessment that he's like, he's like, you basically need art physical therapy. Like you need, you need to develop your other muscles. It's like, I'm not saying this isn't good, but I can see from looking at this that you're walking a known path and that you're using something that actually doesn't really intuitively apply to this class. And he's like, go back and start with form instead of with like a two-dimensional design and he's like if you can't find anything within an hour you can make this i'll let you make it and he's like but give me the hour and i remember going back i was like okay fine and i went i love being pushed by instructors like i love a harsh i love a harsh teacher because to me that's somebody saying i think you can do better which is a huge compliment at least to me and so i go back and i spent the hour trying to think about form, which I had literally never done in my life. And I still have the series of drawings that led me to the object that I made. Um, but yeah, it was like completely, it was kind of like a cave with these metal bars going through it. Yeah, a complete brain cracking shift. It's one of those things, like I remember the weather on the day <laughs> that I made that drawing. Wow. You know, because you just, you notice yourself changing and you're like this exercise this hour changed me and and where did it progress from there did did you actually take did you find that wood was your medium that that's what you enjoyed did you what did you explore as a sculptor uh sculpture major as an undergrad it was mostly wood and um assemblage you know collage essentially um I did a lot of gluing three-quarter inch plywood together and then carving it with an angle grinder. I was real into that. Um, Messy stuff. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I remember a lot of Bondo. Um, I definitely did not know what joinery was. I never used solid wood. Um, I mean, where it went from there was a really wonderful, basically one semester of super intensive work with with wood because that was just the material that's around. I've never been one of those woodworkers that's obsessed with the materiality itself. Like I think that wood is is great. I like it, but I'm very unromantic about it. Like for me, 
wood is interesting and worthwhile because of the scale that I get to work at. You know, I love working at human scale. I like making things that are my size. And wood is like an amazing material for making things my size. And I think that, um, I think the other reason at this point is honestly just that it's the language I speak, right? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not romantic about English either, but it's the language I speak and it's the way that I communicate. And for me, wood is like that, you know, it's the language I learned. And so it's the language I use. It's a pretty brutal language. <laughs> so let's unpack all of that because I am actually fascinated by your background, Aspen, because as, as Rob and I were talking, I'd say the vast majority of people we have talked to of all walks of life, including Rob and I, can trace our roots back to either Rochester Institute of Technology or San Diego State University. <laughs> um, those are those are the two sort of touchstone programs in the modern furniture movement of the people that were school trained. Now, there's a lot of excellent untrained woodworkers. You trace your roots to the North Bennett Street School, mm -hmm. and which I believe is the oldest crafts program in the United States, right? Like something like 1880. I believe so. I mean, I think it depends how you define it, but I, I know that they are, or at least their insignia says, the oldest industrial school in the United States. Right. And <laughs> and so this is a traditional crafts program where you are learning a lot of hand skills oh, and yeah. you are focusing on period furniture, mm -hmm. which is, what is that? We're talking 1780, 1700s to 1800s, roughly? Oh, no, girl. We're talking like 1650. <laughs> <laughs> so like 1890 100, 130 years off wow yeah. <laughs> right oh so so and and the interesting thing is you made this statement about wood not being the the uh the putting wood on a pedestal was mm -hmm. all about those pieces you know those perfectly book matched hand sawn drawer fronts and everything you know all i see when i see those objects and all i saw when i interviewed at north bennett and wandered around that school and decided to go was a material and an object like when i look at those book matched pieces or i look at these curved front you know bow front cabinets whatever i what i see is like a person's ability to deeply understand and manipulate a material in alignment with their vision right like that's all i saw i'm like look at these skills like this person was making choices and so i was looking at all of these things and just thinking about all of the choices that i would be able to make if i learned how to do that wow very interesting take a very a very interesting <laughs> take on it um because not like that's beautiful i want to make it no oh my gosh no no, I was honestly, I'm sort of annoyed that I fell in love with period furniture. I made a promise to myself when I went to North Bennett Street School. It's like, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Just learn how to cut the dovetails. Learn how to make the curvy fronts. Learn, learn how to <laughs> make secret compartments. Learn how to carve. Do not fall in love with this stuff. Uh-oh. But you drank the Kool-Aid. I mean, as we're going to get into, talk about your experience at North Bennett Street School. Because as you talk, I go... You seem like the person that should have gone to the College of the Redwoods and really learned the whole Krenov, you know, the whole Krenov movement of incredible handcrafts, but much more Scandinavian bent in terms of design. So yeah. what did you learn at North Bennett? 
I think that for me, I mean, I've visited Kranov School since, and it was one of the few places that I visited. I went and gave a, a talk um, and got to hang with Laura for a few days. And it was one of, you know, I mean, it was one of those places that I, I just quite simply did not want to leave. Um, I was like, is it in my best interest to get back on the plane? Like, I don't really see why I would. I could just stay here, you know? <laughs> so I get it. I think that... Um, I didn't know about the Kronov School when I went to North Bennett. Had I known, though, I believe I, I still would have gone to North Bennett. And I think that in some ways, and this is no shade to the Kronov School, but there's, and it's in some ways it's actually a compliment, there's a kind of gentleness to the Kronov School that didn't appeal to me at that time and still doesn't. Um, there's a kind of um, commitment to an aesthetic that feels deeper and more spiritual. And so for me at North Bennett, I think what appealed to me, like I wanted, I'd had been, been full of ideas forever. And I wanted like an old man to yell at me about dovetails for two years. I wanted it. You know, I wanted to just know things. And I felt like in some ways, the incredible distance between my goals as an artist and what that school was trying to encourage, at least aesthetically, they were so divergent that I felt safe walking in. I was like, I'm not going to be changed by this place in these deep ways. I'm going to learn everything I want to know. And then I'm going to have all of these skills to do whatever I want with. And then obviously you fall in love with the place. You start to stare at this, you know, grandma furniture and you start to see the gorgeousness in it. And then you start understanding the way that it relates to our culture and the stories that can be told about, you know, marginalization and about history through these objects. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh God, this is a very fruitful language. And now I'm obsessed. But prior to that, I think that I, I almost, um, I wanted this sort of anonymity that comes from being in a place where you're getting exactly what you need, but you're not necessarily like fully understood. And I think that that worked for me at North Bennett. Like I walked in there and I'm like, these, these people are incredible and they're deeply committed to me and my craft journey, which is what I want right now. But they don't care that I'm good at drawing and painting. They don't care that I have, like they're not interested in this whole other side of me. And so I'm like, that's mine to put together later. Right, and that's, I mean, again, a, a very, very interesting perspective on a traditional crafts education. Um, because, you know, even a place like Cranover, these other programs, in a sense, they're very competitive. I mean, you mean internally so or competitive in the sense that, you know, you're putting your ideas out there in public constantly. When you yeah. get when you get a uh, when you get an assignment to build something to sit on, you're going to see 10, 12 radically different concepts mm -hmm. and everybody and competitive, not necessarily in a negative sense, but competitive in the sense that you're all pushing each mm -hmm. other to really get out there on mm -hmm. the design edge where you're all building more or less the same piece yeah. and you're perfecting. It's almost much more of a, of a Japanese aesthetic in that mm -hmm. the fence that you're trying to perfect yeah. this one form and you're all building that form. I think Eric, the privacy of that really appealed to me. Like I wasn't, I wanted the purity of the craft education. I didn't actually want space to design things. I'm like, I have two years to learn how to woodwork. And that's what I want to do. You know, and the goal being that it's almost like a someone who loves dance going to the gym is kind of how I thought about it. I'm like, this is like two years of hardcore workouts. And that's what I want. And, you know, inevitably, even in my work at North Bennett, by the end of it, you know, things my myself started creeping back into it, because you just can't hold that kind of thing back. 
and it really lit up the work for me and sort of motivated me to keep going. But yeah, I think that I, I can't think of any better way to describe it other than sort of the privacy of traditional craft. Like there's a way that you sort of melt into a tradition and like a step-by-step process where you don't have to think about yourself all the time. And I think that was something that I found totally exhausting and unsustainable about drawing and painting. I'm like, it's too chaotic. There's too many options. It's too much about me. Like I just want, in some ways, like I want to balance, right? I want to balance between moments where I'm just executing craft in alignment with the way that I was taught to do it that was built by collective genius over the last like many thousands of years. And then I want to have moments where the thing that I'm doing or the way that I'm approaching it is like completely emanating from my own personal story and my own subconscious and my own little child brain pushing sticks into a circle or making snow horses. You know, it's it's about that balance for me. And so North Bend, it was like, it was the perfect place to go in that I could not have been held by people who cared more about me becoming good at craft. It was just the right boot camp that you were looking for to supercharge your skills. I was ready for it. I just wanted my ass kicked and I got it. And so after, well, I mean, uh, that's an interesting way to put it, but I mean, you perfected your hand skills. I mean, there's always been things I've really respected about people that have gone to North Bennett, North Bennett Street School and Krenov is that they are, they are exceptional craftspeople. And I've always been one to go for my angle grinder almost right away. It's yeah. like, I have an idea in my head that is screaming to get out and I am going to find the quickest way from A to B. Right. It's the fast and slow, right? You got to have like a fast, fast parts of your process and slow parts. Like my doodling, pro- my, you know, I mean, I mess around with clay. I like draw terrible nonsense. You know, I mean, that stuff's critical, you know, and I think a lot, yeah, you got it. You got to have a way to blow off steam and move fast too. And it's funny, like talking with Chris Schwarz, you know, it's like the, and you've been there, right? Yeah. 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 It's like the front of the house is the hand tools and you go to the back, there's the machine shop to yeah. get the shit done fast totally. so you can go to the front and be slow and yeah. and learn about, you know, machines are easy, you know, that's yeah. the, but come to the front and learn the slow stuff that takes a lot of time. Yeah. It's the full range for me. I love the slow parts and I love the fast parts and I love the, yeah, I love the range. I love the, the like permission to just like carve something for a while. And that, style of furniture and that style of making it gives me permission to occasionally spend an entire tuesday just punching holes in a piece of wood is that meditational i mean what's the i mean is that what function does that actually serve i'm just curious i I find it very meditational and it's often more meditational when there's no purpose to it Mm -hmm. i'm just carving i'm just making a model i'm just carving an idea that's not actually a finished piece i mean i think one of the things that i love about the style of those super old pieces and if anyone's wondering what i'm talking about i'm talking like specifically thinking right now about like um, a connecticut blanket chest from like the 1600s um so it's this style of carving that's super repetitive very busy tons of flourishes, like basically the definition of something I would have hated, the opposite of Krenov, the opposite of Scandinavian minimalism, like the opposite of everything that I would have loved prior to going to North Bennett. But looking at an object like that, it's like what makes it gorgeous is the the lack of fear of ornamentation and of flourishes, the, um, 
the imperfection of each cut cumulatively doesn't look imperfect at all. There's like a busyness and a movement to those, those, um, those carvings that I find is missing in Scandinavian furniture, which is so symmetrical and so smooth. It's almost static. It's like frozen. And so for me, it's like looking at these handmade objects, there's an animation to it, right? It's, it's like handwriting. It's not fonts. And so, yeah, for me, it's like, I think that I enjoy those processes quite simply because I love feeling the material. I love slowly over the course of the day, imperceptibly getting better at it, which is like a little sort of game I play with myself. You know, no one knows. It's not visible in the work, but I'm like, I understand this material or I understand the pressure on this like tool a little bit better. And so getting deeper into myself in that way. I think forgetting that I exist for a hot minute is always fun. And I get to do that when I carve all day. And then understanding that each of these little cuts, um, either set-ins or relief cuts, like all of those things, no single cut is important. It's like this cumulative thing. So you don't have to you don't have to be in like emotional pain over how well you execute it, right? It's just this, it's this accumulation of almost perfect that altogether creates this like chaotic and fluid and very human pattern that I think is worth it, I guess. And, and yeah. So actually, so I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because there's a piece of, no, there's a piece of your background. Again, I, I am fascinated about, and I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot. So, and so you recently got a uh, critical craft fellowship at the Winther. Is that how you pronounce it? Winterthur. Yeah. Winterthur. Winterthur. Or winter which, tour. They say it, winter, I think they say it winter tour. I'm winter sorry, tour. winter tour. I love you. <laughs> Saying it wrong. We're trying the best we can. <laughs> It sounds like you need somebody English to pronounce it. Winterthur. Yeah, Winterthur. I think you just nailed it. That's the one. Winterthur, Winterthur yeah. Museum to sort of discuss the the role of period furniture with, um, well, you describe it because it seems in your description of it, and I read on your website, it's bringing these old pieces of furniture to minority and other communities who normally wouldn't really give a shit about it. <laughs> so I guess the question is, why should, why should I give a shit about period furniture? And why is, and why is a person of, I would say a, uh, you know, what's the best way to put it as a, as a minority community, why should I care about something that was made in 1600s? Well, Especially, probably made by slaves. Probably, probably uh, the craftsperson was probably horribly paid, um, and it was made for people that were incredibly wealthy, who were the only people that could afford it. Um, mm -hmm. So, tell me why I should care. <laughs> well, I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways to approach it. I mean, the fact that a lot of this furniture was made by enslaved people is part of the reason why it's important is it's a recognition of the fact that this craft history not only includes, but actually practically centers all of these people who we now consider to be historically excluded or minorities in the field. I mean, many of these cuts, many of these objects, many of these designs were created by enslaved people and people from before slavery. So, I mean, these are all like this history of craft 
belongs to all of us. And I think that people are doing important work in terms of rewriting these histories and basically unwhitewashing them. And so one of the things that we were doing at Winter Tour was separate from that project, it was actually just trying to reconnect to these sort of acts of craft, which I would consider to be things like splitting wood, turning it into spindles, joining those together and making an object that you can sit on. And so trying to essentially come up with ways to democratize these objects. And so basically, like, if you look at a Windsor chair, you can very quickly break it down into something that is just a system of joinery. It's just material and joinery. And so all of the sort of forms that you use to connect those points of joinery is up to you once you understand the material. And so what my friend Kelly and I, we were working together on that fellowship did was we traveled through the collection. We were measuring all of these chairs and trying to figure out like, what are the actual rules of this medium? Like how small can a spindle get? Like what angles function? Cause these are old chairs. So I'm like, if this thing is still cruising after 300 years, I think we can assume that this joint is strong. So, <laughs> so we were trying to sort of boil it down, take away the colonial aesthetics, take away all of the things that we associate with these, with like, you know, super problematic moments in American history, and then sort of look at it as a system of joinery that can then be reintroduced to a group of people who are then able to learn it and use it to tell their own stories, use it to empower themselves, use it to talk about and bring to the surface this entire currently lived history, historic experience that was not recorded by these museums. And Winter Tour was super excited about that. So Kelly and I were not only doing those measurements, our goal was then to come up with designs, pieces of furniture that were based on those measurements, but did not rely on colonial aesthetics, and then use those designs to teach as the center of like a um, craft curriculum that teaches traditional furniture outside of the colonial aesthetics. So like, how do you teach the hand skills of a North Bennett Street school without forcing everyone to make a demi-loon table? Like, how do you teach the techniques of Windsor chair making without requiring that everybody make a comb back Windsor with volute ears? You know, and so just basically trying to separate these processes from these aesthetics because they are very arbitrarily connected at this point in history. We are able to separate them. Right. And, you know, that actually, interestingly, it brings up to me and some of your work, you do these very ornate pieces and then you did these whole select this whole collection of like, as best I can understand, they're like Welsh stick chairs, which <laughs> is a, are they Welsh stick chairs or is it a off of a Welsh stick chair? <laughs> I mean, I make a lot of uh, like staked furniture and stick chairs. Yeah. I mean, I find it. I love the history of them. Like, I love that. um people. We were talking earlier about what I loved about North Bennett being this ability to have control over a material. Well, stick chairs are like this really fun balance between um, the control of the craftsperson and the environment they find themselves in, you know, because like the curve of the back of the chair, those are oftentimes like a found root. You know, they didn't bend things. They just found something and then joined it together. And so it's this beautiful blend of like nature and craft and necessity and then these occasional like you know the the furniture of necessity but then these tiny little moments of decoration because one might argue that decoration and beauty are also necessary 
And so, yeah, I mean, I love that type of furniture as well. I would consider myself, Eric, still very much in the beginning of my career. These are like very, I graduated from North Bennett in 2019. So I've only been like a woodworker for a couple years now. One, one, one thing that I mentioned to Eric too, it's like, you, you know, you, you are young, you're in your thirties and you're still on your website. You get on there and it's like, there's this technique and this technique and this technique and this technique. It's like, you're learning a whole bunch of stuff. I'm obsessed, but it's, yeah, that, I mean, it, it, <laughs> that's a, <laughs> you are, but you, but you're also very good at what you're doing. And by, by taking that and learning as much as you can, you know, 10 years from now, I mean, maybe you'll get to the end of learning all the stuff in furniture and you'll pick one. <laughs> See, that's the thing. I don't know. Like I, I actually can't like Eric say whether the work that I did at North Bennett or stick chairs or the next thing are most in alignment with my practice. I think it's still evolving. Mm-hmm. I think that I've found the most success so far in pursuing what I'm interested in. And I know that sounds like a basic thing to say, but I think at some point I recognized that I'm more likely to do things that I want to do. And that yeah. with craft, it really comes down to whether you're going to keep doing it. Like, are you going to, if you go into the studio and practice it every day, you're going to get good at it. And so what's the precondition for going into the studio and practicing it every day, being obsessed with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, you, no, I- you put in the time, you know, you go put in the time and it's gonna, it's gonna come back to you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I wasn't in any ways trying to intimate that one should fall into a, I mean, stylistically, I, I personally believe in being all over the board. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, one of my, one of my favorite examples and one of my favorite artists is Joni Mitchell. And over a career, mm-hmm. she probably tried a hundred different styles yeah. and she was fairly successful at just about every single one of them. Um, Fun to watch an artist do that, I think. Yeah. One of the ways I got to see it happen a lot was I I was wood coordinator um, at Penland School of Craft for two years. And um, that was one of, that was, I mean, best job ever. (laughs) But one of the coolest things that I experienced there is watching the core fellows who are people who are there for two years and they work for the school and they take free classes and they live there. Um, These people like take all of these different classes. So somebody sort of comes in and they're sort of a potter, but then they take an iron class and a fibers class and a wood class. And watching that person's voice shift and also be completely visible in all of those different materials, you know, it's like, I don't know Kento's work in clay, but then I see it and I'm like, that's absolutely Kento's voice in clay. You know, and it it was fascinating to watch these, these people sort of manifest some more essential aspect of who they are as makers in all of these different materials. I kind of, I mean, I always hope to be like that. And I think that, you know, I don't want to always use my strongest muscle, which is wood. I always want to at least go back into what do the you, abyss. What do you need? <laughs> what do you need? What a unique vantage point. I, I, I always think of like, so you did it for two years. Imagine Jason Schneider having done it for like 10 years at, yeah. at Anderson Ranch. It's like, see all those people come through and learn and learn and mm-hmm. learn and be inspired by them. And it's like, yeah, wow, that's, yeah. It's a very, it's a very cool job. I mean, the, 
if you are somebody who is looking, I mean, I, I graduated from North Bennett. Okay, so we talked about my history. Like after going to college, I messed around and was a dweeb for a couple of years, like doing whatever I was doing in my early 20s. Um, and, and that's when I think I met you. I met yeah, you, we met. I was wondering. I met you was in like, up. it was like 2009, 2010, 11. Yep. Right I graduated there. from college. I was looking for a studio. Yeah, and you came to Tim Barnwell's building, probably through Sylvie or Tim Maddox or somebody. Oh, no. I found you on Craigslist. You did? Oh, no way. I didn't know anyone, Rob. Like, I I had just moved from Ohio where I got a degree in sculpture at a school Mm -hmm. that is not known for sculpture. No, I didn't know any any craft people. I'm starting to remember you explaining to me, like, oh, I don't know, have any woodworking experience. I haven't used this or that or the other. And I'm like, well, yeah, I guess that could work. And then, yeah, <laughs> but, so I, but I remember you coming into the know, studio. <laughs> Rob and my earliest meeting is Rob's woodshop is the first woodshop I ever walked into. Like yeah. I graduated from college. I moved to Asheville, North Carolina, and I really wanted to keep making things out of wood. But as previously described, I had never worked with, you know, um, non-plywood didn't know how to use didn't know what a jointer even was what a planer was like let alone know how to use them didn't understand that wood moved because plywood doesn't I mean I didn't know what I was doing but I knew I wanted to be in a shop and Rob put you know there was this there was a space in his shop and it was on Craigslist and I went to see it and I was terrified and I met this guy and he was nice to me and it was you <laughs> and you did make me feel like I could do it I could tell you were nervous you're like this kid is explicitly making she's making it clear that she doesn't know what she's doing but I think I can hang I was in that place too because when I jumped into Haywood I was just doing stuff with the circular saw outside of my backyard yeah, and uh, out of the back of an apartment and a little storage shed there. And I went to Haywood, which is, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like North Bennett, you know, it's a two year intensive mm-hmm. and I mean, it's not quite as intensive as, as North Bennett, but I went in there not knowing shit. And <laughs> so I was, yeah, yeah, I was, I was a little, so I felt your nervousness and I realized yeah. that was like, yeah, I've been there. I know this, you know, yeah. you're, you're having, you have enough confidence in yourself to take a jump and you're trying. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I backed out. You offered me the I know, spot. I know, like, I know. I couldn't, I couldn't afford it first of all, but I, I mean, second, I just remember thinking like, damn, that guy made a thing with a drawer. That's insane. Like oh. I just, and I think I mean I, I didn't know how to make a box. Like I couldn't do anything, man. And that's totally cool. Like I yeah. you know, I angle grind plywood and I loved it and that's all that mattered. But I made um, a thing with the drawer. Yay. Yeah. And I was I mean, like, that guy made a thing with the drawer. He is a dope woodworker. Like that guy knows what he's doing. And, <laughs> but I mean, I think that imposter syndrome just comes with the territory. Like I my mentor in Windsor chair making he said this thing to me recently. I was like, does imposter syndrome ever go away? And he was like, he's like, Aspen, we'd be monsters if it ever did. You know, I mean, you, you have to learn how to live with it to some degree. Well, it's like, and you got to learn. How, you, I mean, I say yes to a lot of stuff I don't know how to do. And then I figure it out. Oh my God. Every dang day yeah, I walk into the yeah. shop, not knowing how to do stuff. That's and, the whole thing. And, that's and the you learn. It's that's the beauty of doing this. It's like you challenge yourself, you make mistakes, you figure out how to do it. And then, you know, a couple of months or a few years or even tomorrow you figured it out. 
I think that's why you got to kind of unashamedly just do the work that you secretly most want to do anyway, because Mm -hmm. it's terrifying no matter what. And so it's like, if you don't have like a deep desire to do it, you're probably going to stop at some point. I mean, yeah. I mean, I didn't want to be a craftsperson. I was very much educated (laughs) by my um, high school, which was a fine arts high school and by college, my college that, you know, contemporary craft, conceptual craft, um, abstract painting like these were this is art and this other stuff craft it's derivative yeah what's that it's weak it's um yeah and and i believed it for a long time and i eventually (laughs) you're just like you're too bored of fighting it anymore you're too bored of fighting yourself you like you get tired and your true colors creep in and you become a craftsperson (laughs) i think the first time i realized that I could use my woodworking skills in art was seeing what um, uh, Martin Purrier did Mm. with his sculpture and realizing that he was, he was also a woodworker. And I found it very fascinating that he was also into um, birding with hawks too, but um, he put his woodworking skills into sculpture and turned it into art. And I was like, wait, you can do that. Yeah, it really is. It's possible. Totally. And going into North Bennett and looking at it, I'm like, this is just, all I have to do is decontextualize these skills. Mm-hmm. Like all these are like, these are just like cuts. These are ways of sticking one piece of wood to another piece of wood. Like that's all I'm looking at here. And I think I was so compelled by it because of the high degree of specificity. I was like, this place is going to push me hard. And that's what I want. And it's like, okay. <laughs> so after I did not take that spot in your shop. Yeah. I went and I worked for this amazing guy named Berthold Haas and he ran a um, design studio and his sons Mm -hmm. are actually the Haas brothers who have become famous for furniture making, whatever. But um, that weird sculpted chair that my first instructor forced me to make was the thing that got me that job. It's just weird the way all these things are connected. And then I ended up quitting that job because I was on the phone Part of my job was being on the phone with celebrities who we were making furniture for. And I was on the phone with a celebrity and it was like 9 a.m. And they were still wasted from the night before. And I was trying to ask them, I'm like, do you want your couch to be shiny or not shiny? <laughs> and like, he just couldn't tell me. He was like, yo, I don't know. And I'm like, I can't with it. Like at just this moment of being on the phone with this, I'm like, this is, this is not what I want. and I decided to become a teacher like at that moment and then I went back to school and I did seven years as a high school teacher um yeah so I taught high school for seven years and um, oh I didn't realize that oh yeah and it was all about like essentially giving other people access to the type of creative experience that I had had in college and in high school and just wanting to do everything I could to like crack those brains open and give them everything, every, every possible like moment of contact with themselves, with material, with that kind of private space that craft and making creates for you, blah, Mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. And then at some point I realized, Oh shit, I'm 29 years old. I have a job. I love, I'm super into it. That being said, there's still parts of me that are like not entirely fulfilled. And I feel like I'm just stupid enough, just stupid enough, (laughs) just brave enough and just fulfilled enough, like just confident enough based on the job I have right now to quit it all and go back to school for a minute. 
And yeah, wow. and I went to North Bennett and the idea was just to gain some skills, like empower myself, scratch an itch and go back to teaching. And then, yeah, it just kind of. And now you're doing teaching viral. on a, a whole nother level. Yeah. With... Well, it's funny because I'm back, I'm teaching at RISD this semester mm-hmm. and I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm back with my kids, you know, I feel like I'm back in the classroom with these, with these kids. And I know they're a few years older than the ones I was teaching, but only a few. And we're all like little baby idiots when it comes to first touching and getting in touch with the material that we're most interested in. And so I feel like I'm still with people at that exact moment of discovery, realization, vulnerability, excitement, all of the stuff. And it's wonderful. Wow. Yeah. But speaking of decontextualizing, um, we've talked with uh, many people about your amazing brushes and brooms, and you started the whole brushes and brooms thing. Everybody credits you. Uh, where did I mean, that is the that is like the the best example of decontextualizing all of your skills and coming up with these semi-functional objects of beauty. What's what's your take on what's what's the broom thing all about? What? happened well i mean i'm definitely not the first you know someone taught me how to do it um, right right uh, yeah devin vasquez um, who is a core fellow at north at um penland school super talented person um they're a jewelry maker um they taught me how to do it and then i've developed my own process since then just you know through extreme frustration you know i think devin's maybe more patient than i am but i was like there has to be a better way <laughs> <laughs> um, also COVID lockdown really helped me out with that. But, um, I think that it came down to something that a lot of us can relate to and something we've already touched on a little bit, which is, um, needing to work fast and work slow. And at, before I started making brushes and brooms, my entire woodworking journey had been these large ultra complex pieces of furniture you know, and I'd have an idea, I'd make a drawing, and then you're locked in for like three months sometimes, making that object real. And while I love that process, like I love how extended that experience is and the commitment and the, the, I don't know, the, the amount of FaceTime you have with that object, I also have a part of me that just needs to iterate quickly, like needs to play, needs to try something and see if it's good and, and try it again and see if I can make it better and just keep moving. And I think that I was seeking something that could scratch that itch, something that I could use to express that. And brushes are the perfect jumping off point because they're essentially just this very intimate handheld object that can be anything that you can drill a hole in, essentially. So the functional limitations are so minor that the aesthetic freedom is just massive. And so it's like, this is my chance. I can use all of these weird little skills that I learned at North Bennett. I can create these bizarre sculptures and those can still exist in the world (laughs) of function. Like I find function to be a very comforting little, like I'm one of those kids that plays better when I have boundaries around me. Like give me all the choices in the world and I actually get a little overwhelmed and retreat. And then if you give me some rules or like a fence to play inside of, then I go wild. (laughs) And so for me, it's like, I love furniture and I love wood and I love crap because there are these like little, and function because there's these rules and you get to push up against them and like fight with them a little bit. And I think that that tension is like what I find really fun about making functional objects. And so brushes were perfect in that 
they still have this veneer of function and a few rules but so much, so many fewer than furniture. And so it became this incredible moment to just play. And I think that, you know, people started seeing me put them out and the teacher in me and the community builder in me immediately, all I wanted to do was see what everybody else would do with it if they knew how to make it because it was so easy. You know, I mean, it's, it's so intuitive. And so, yeah, I spent like four days making an Instagram story about how to make it, posted that thing. And then for about, Four years now, I've just been enjoying watching everybody just put themselves into this object. And I'm about to teach it at RISD. You know, in some ways, it's annoying because I can't get away from it. They're like, come teach at RISD. And then they're like, oh, we're going to do this project, this project, this project. Actually, hold up. What if we did brushes? I'm like, no. <laughs> well, it's like becoming. It's, it's following me. <laughs> it's like being coming, being known for your best hit, which you're absolutely sick of doing. Oh, you got to play that song again. Because <laughs> no. I get bored of them, but then other people breathe new life into them. Yeah. You know, and so that's, it's, you know, it's not about the brush. I think that the interesting thing about it is, again, it's, it's, it's very tangential connection to function. I think the combination of hard and soft materials is fascinating. I'm actually, I'm writing a book on brush making now just to really put the oh. nail in the coffin about yeah. the association. Put me on the list. I, I want one. Put me on the list. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> it's great. And it's wonderful to research it too, because talk about, you know, now the relationship between um, history and craft, like, and culture and craft. Every culture comes up with brooms and brushes. And as um, a really wonderful, very smart friend of mine, Hunter Elliot, who um, works in at Berea College in the Broomcraft program, said mm-hmm. he was talking about it, saying that like brooms evolved at the moment that humans began to recognize the difference between internal and external space, and like began to define that and say like we're going to push this dirt, these ashes, these bones out of this space and into this other space, and the line, the place where we stop pushing, that's domestic space, that's home. And then the rest isn't. And so it's like every culture has an object that cleans and that defines internal and external space. And so getting to like research all those things. And basically what I'm saying is I'll fall down any rabbit hole. I think that's what (laughs) I'm saying here. Well, no, I mean, these are these are some these are some great rabbit holes to fall down. And and speaking of other rabbit holes, you've made some cool uh, rabbits, by the way. There's some of the (laughs) yes, you've made some some of the coolest brushes I've ever seen. But another thing. I was fascinated by is that we spent a long time talking with uh, Wendy Murayama mm-hmm. um, as of, you know, the, the former head of, of SDSU. And you just had a yeah, and like a angel win- incarnate. Yeah. Angel right. incarnate. <laughs> and um, and we just had a long conversation with Wendy and you went to uh, you did a Wingate residency there mm-hmm. uh, last year and studied the silvering of mirrors, the hand silvering of mirrors, which is really wild because, first of all, Wendy's most recent work is on black lacquer mirrors, Mm -hmm. and it's a fascinating body of work. Um, We touch on it quite a bit in our conversation with Wendy Mm -hmm. in in February of 2023. I also did a little film on Wendy where we talk about it, and we show some of the images. Mm -hmm. And so mirrors are a wonderful metaphor, but hand silvering mirrors? Mm-hmm. Really, Aspen? Why really? not? Why not? <laughs> yeah. So so you know, so tell us a little bit about it and 
Why? Well, I think, I mean, I've always been obsessed with making things and I've always been obsessed with making things from like as close to scratch as possible because that's all, that's the obsession with materiality and understanding things. And I wouldn't like control in the good sense of the word, you know, the kind of control that comes out of really understanding the thing that you're working with. And so for me, like, I mean, I remember when I learned how to weave, one of the first things I did was take care of a sheep, like learn how to take care of a sheep because I wanted to learn how to really like learning how to weave meant learning how to take care of a sheep. And so for me, learning how to work with mirror means like learning how to mix the silvering chemicals and like understanding chemically how it works. Because if you understand it from scratch, then you're able to manipulate it more deeply and like able to, you know, understand how to block, how to create different tones, how to ultimately create the object in your mind. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that learning how to silver mirror is easier than it sounds. I definitely, <laughs> it took me four months. Um, it's, it sounds toxic as can be. It is. is that, it is. Uh, that's, that's the thing. That's what that was my first thought. It was, you know, my first thought with like this proliferation of horrible epoxy tables out there mm-hmm. is, is that one, why? And two, it's just toxic as can be. I mean, why would you want to work with these toxic chemicals? <laughs> it's not as bad as you think. I do wear a respirator. I actually wear a respirator when I'm working with a lot of wood dust, too. Same deal. Oh, yeah. You know, the material world is a dangerous place. I think that my interest in mirrors specifically, it's like it is sort of, it's this blend between my furniture practice and my painting and drawing practice. You know, I mean, they're, it's wall-hung furniture, essentially. And it's basically, rather than focusing on the canvas, which, you know, the, the the image that would then be framed, it's me focusing on the frame and building this frame. And then, of course, rather than just buying a piece of glass and sticking it in there, wanting to be able to investigate and control and manipulate the actual reflective surface as well, I think makes sense. I mean, I also recently spent two weeks um, with my friend Eleanor Rose, who's a um, resident at the Appalachian Center for Craft right now. She's a really incredible tool maker. And she taught me how to um, carve wax and make my own drawer pulls because it's the same thing. You don't want to make this gorgeous thing that takes forever and that is like a total, totally emanates from your own design mind and then throw some store-bought pulls on the outside, right? Like you want to be able to make them yourself. So I think it's, it's really, it's that. You know, so I wanted to make mirrors because, again, that combination of sort of imagery and sculpture is a big part of my practice. Um, ways of weaving together 20 years of drawing and painting with five years of sculpture mirrors just jumped right out at me. And then, I mean, it's magic too, Eric, like making oh, a yeah. silvered <laughs> mirror. It's magic. It goes, you watch it. It's like, it's like darkroom photography. You watch it develop in front of your eyes. And so you pour these, you sensitize the glass and then you pour chemicals on so that they cross in the air, which forces the silver particles to like decon, like not basically fall out of solution and stick to the sensitizer and binder on the surface. And you watch a glass piece of glass become reflective and you see yourself in it. Now you're a magician. It's crazy. (laughs) I know. It feels so cool. And I remember the SDSU students like, like poking their heads into my studio and they're like, I thought she was a woodworker. You know, and I'm, ah. I'm surrounded by all these like beakers and bottles and like, you know, chemical solutions and my whole body is covered in, you know, protective gear, <laughs> like giggling because I'm making mirrors. It's the coolest thing. 
Well, I mean, that's it actually fits. I mean, you're like a 16th century, a 15th century alchemist. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah. Uh, only instead of uh, instead of dying of Mad Hatter's disease, because yeah. I think old silver mirrors had mercury in them. Did yeah. they not? Yeah. This is one of those things where you think you're doing something new. And then the people who are able to see you from a little bit of a distance are like, no, that's actually totally on brand. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to really mix it up with this mirror thing. And then you phrase it that way. And I'm like, no, I'm still doing the same thing. You know, it's like, but if your personality, if you're like genuinely following your own set of interests, then everything is going to kind of hover around, you know, the same sort of, yeah, set of essential fascinations. And it, I think that's one of the coolest things about being in this field for more than a couple of years is starting to like, starting, starting to, see my own practice from a little bit of a distance and starting to understand who I am a little bit better just by looking at my own work. I'm like, oh, wow, I guess I am that person. How fascinating. I had no idea. <laughs> so so what is that person headed to next? Well, I mean, I think that I'm spending a lot of my time working on this nonprofit that I started a few years ago called the Chairmaker's Toolbox. Yeah. Tell us about that. Oh, it's so cool. It's it's the most fun thing. Um, now there's a group of about 17 of us who are working together on what we call the core committee. And we're separated into all these different subcommittees, like education, tools, um, communications, government. It's, it's awesome. Um, and I'm definitely not much of an institutional person, but I'm really enjoying being part of this weird little institution. Um, and so what we do, we have these like three main projects. One, is education. So we do free and sliding scale classes. Um, and they're typically open to people who identify as historically excluded in the field. And that is typically people who identify as BIPOC, female, non-binary, um, gender fluid, trans. And I mean, but we are also open to people self-identifying as outsiders in the field in a lot of different ways. So it's an expanding and shifting category. Um, and the goal is to provide chairmaking skills to these, like to people who want them. And part of the reason why we chose chairmaking specifically is like, it's one of those mediums where you don't actually need a shop. And so if you're unable to find a space that you feel safe or comfortable in, you're still able to make the work. Like you can make a Windsor chair, a really epic, gorgeous, iconic Windsor chair in your backyard easily. And so it seemed like this perfect entry point to provide these skills and materials and give people a chance to dive in headfirst to this traditional craft experience in a way that had a really low overhead. They could immediately design their own work and they could do it without necessarily having to engage with the toxic woodworking culture. Um, so that's one of our projects. The other one is the toolbox. And so that is basically it, it, it emanated from the reality of the fact that in order to make these weird old chairs, you need weird old tools and they're hard to find. They're really hard to find. And the few that do exist or are being made now, um, you know, there's like three year wait lists for them. So we started connecting with people who are metal workers, um, who are interested in producing one of these tools. We connect them with someone who's already a Windsor chair maker, very experienced Windsor chair maker, and they will choose a tool. And then they swap prototypes with that mentor for like a year until they're ready to produce that tool. And then we announce it and it's on the market. And then it's a way for people to have sustainable businesses in the field and to diversify the field simultaneously. Um, and then the last one is the living tools, which is um, something that came out of like a really kind of personal experience that I had with my chair mentor. I had about a five year plan to buy all the tools I needed to make a chair. And then um, uh, one of his old students who was entering, going into hospice called him and said, 
he had a set of chair tools and he wanted them to go to someone who would use them. And Pete shouted across the room, hey, Aspen, you want some chair tools? And I was like, absolutely. And then a, a few days later, this box arrived and it had every tool that I needed to make chairs. Oh, wow. And it complete it changed my life completely in that moment. And I developed a relationship with the man who donated them to me. And I made a promise to him that I would never sell them, that when the time came, I would donate them to somebody else and it would become this gift in perpetuity. And so we created this project called The Living Tools where people can donate tools. We put them into collections and we give them to people who apply for them. And the only requirement is that they promise to not sell them and give them away when the time comes. So it's just become this incredibly wonderful experience for, you know, me, for somebody who my experience at North Bennett was wonderful on a craft level and on a social level, it was pretty challenging. I think being the only woman in the only queer woman, the only woman in a space in a woodworking space or any space for two years like that was very intense and isolating. Mm -hmm. And it had me starting to wonder whether it was possible to both do the thing I loved and feel welcomed in a community at the same time. And so I think trying to create the world that will sustain a person like myself and the community that I want to see in woodworking and the voices that I would love to see amplified and that haven't been amplified for a long time. I mean, those are, those are the reasons why I can't stop with the chairmaker's toolbox and just getting to see people learn how to do this stuff, take it in their own direction, make it theirs. It's been amazing. And so, yeah, trying to balance that with my current um, studio practice, that's basically and what are you making in your studio currently? Well, I broke my leg in November, so <laughs> I only just started walking again. Um, but I'm going to be back in Chair City making those chairs. Um, and recently got, as I mentioned before, super obsessed with making hardware. So um, a lot of my carving skills, I'm trying to apply them to wax and small uh... pieces of wood so that I can then cast those objects in metal. So just trying to see how basically transforming material transforms form. So I'll make an object right out of wax and then see that object in pewter or bronze or sometimes silver and be fascinated by that transformation. So trying to figure out a way. You're about to head to Australia. Oh yeah. Uh huh. (laughs) I (laughs) pray that I don't get, bit by something <laughs> no no I've, I've i've been there quite a few times my brother lives in melbourne and oh, uh cool. um and uh, i've been telling him about you and and andy buck and i was like oh you gotta try and go oh, check yeah. this this wood dust thing out brian my my brother's name is brian mm-hmm. and uh i was like i think it's in oh. may you should go check it out um so you're headed there are you excited oh my god i'm so excited are you-, you are you're scared you're 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 scared of bugs. I am scared. No, I'm scared don't. of the. I'm scared of the plane ride. I'm scared of bugs. No, the plane ride's fine. Just you'll you'll take a red eye. Get some sleep. It's gonna be great. I'm gonna be going with um, my friend Danielle Rosebird. And it's gonna be amazing. What does Danielle do? I'm really excited. Danielle is a bowl carver in Maine. You should definitely check out her work if you haven't seen cool. it. Um, she, yeah, she does greenwood bowl carving mm-hmm. and some really incredible ornamental carving. And so she and I, um, <laughs> were, we met at Fine Woodworking Live and it was one of those moments where you're we like, are you also the only like 
woman in her 30s in this space right now. And we just immediately glommed onto each other and started, you know, running around and shouting and having a great time. And I just, I I feel bad for everybody else who's on that plane because we have a blast when we're together. But um, you'll have a great time. And uh, and then you get to share the stage with like Andy Buck and Jimmy DeResta and like all these other mm-hmm. like that's that's got to be kind of exciting. Yeah, I mean it's a very funny combo. I feel like oh, yeah. Bern Chanley, the chairmaker who I'm going to be sharing a shop with, he's mm-hmm. like a friend um, and very much in my community of nerdy chairmakers. Danielle again, like you know Greenwood worker, hand tool mm-hmm. person. Andy Buck, like you know, bizarre sculptor artist in wood. Um, and, and then there's all these like YouTubers who I I've met a few times and I, it's like, I know, um, April Wilkerson's going to be there and, uh, Jimmy, I don't, I can't pronounce his last name. Like they're just part of a completely different world of woodworking. And yeah, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I'm excited to meet them. I'm also sort of, (laughs) I'm excited to see what's, like what we have in common, you know, <laughs> probably a lot. The thing I noticed about it though, is they've done a really good job. Everybody does something a little bit different and has a different approach. So it, stuff overlaps enough that everybody's yeah. doing something in wood, but no one craftsperson is doing the same thing. So it it looks like a blast. Yeah. And we'd like to thank Aspen Galan for being a part of the Why Make podcast. Thanks, Aspen, and Why Make. Why Make. Why Make. Thanks for having me. You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher and Apple Podcasts. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. Please help support the Why Make podcast and Why Make Productions by making a tax-deductible donation to us on Fractured Atlas. Visit fundraising.fracturedatlas.org forward slash the-y-make-project or go to the Donate to Why Make page on y-make.com. You can also find us on Instagram at whymakepod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.